Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Uh, Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to the Lehrman Auditorium. We're so glad you could join us today. Um, We're also happy here at the Heritage Foundation to be co-sponsoring this event uh, with the National Review Institute and with the Patient Rights Action Fund. Uh, I'm a research fellow here at Heritage. My name is Ryan Anderson. Um, I'll be one of the panelists later. My only job right now is to introduce Catherine Lopez, who will be moderating today's discussion. Um, Catherine is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, uh, is known all across the world as Kalo through her uh, uh, never-ending blogging at National Review and her writing uh, on a host of outlets. Uh, so please welcome Catherine to the podium. You're kind not to say a never-ending tweeting. You know, I, I'd have a library of books written if I didn't tweet, um, but you're <laughs> similar. You just managed a couple of books. Thank you, um, everyone, for, for being here. Um, Ryan and I have been wanting to do this event um, for a long time. Um, in tribute to um, J.J. Hansen's life, um, in, in tribute to Chris Hansen's witness, um, highlighting some of um, the solutions that are out there that are, that are not assisted suicide, um, that, are, um, that really are a testament to human dignity. And, and um, we're going to begin with two videos um, that, uh, that make it possible, thanks to the Patients' Rights Action Fund for, um, for doing these videos. J.J. Hansen gets to be a panelist today, which we're really grateful for. Um, so, so we'll begin with the two videos. My family has had a motto someone would complain about. I can't go out to school today because I'm sick. And my dad's response would be, you can't hurt steel. I was very active growing up, did a lot of sports, played football. Uh, my family has a long line of military service, uh, specifically the Marine Corps. While I was in the Marine Corps, I got married to my wife, Chris. Life couldn't have been more perfect. We had just had James, he was one years old. We had moved to Florida. JJ had a job that he absolutely loved. We were living what people would consider as the American dream. May of 2014, I started to feel what felt like uh, a very deep anxiety attack. And I knew something was, was wrong with me because it just kept getting worse. And at that point, my ability to speak began to go away. My phone rang, and I saw it was JJ's number on my caller ID. And I answered it, and a woman's voice was on the phone. She was a paramedic. She was with JJ. He had had a grand mal seizure. They started doing tests. 
They weren't going to do an MRI initially. However, my wife, Chris, pushed them very heavily to do an MRI. The neurologist came back in and looked at us, and I'll never forget the look on his face when he told us, you have two lesions in your left temporal lobe. Grade four glioblastoma multiforme, which is uh, one of the, if not the deadliest form of brain cancer that exists. The neurosurgeon who conducted the biopsy said that the, the cancer was inoperable. You have four months to live. In a best case scenario, you may get a year. And that was it, he walked away. When a week, week before that, you were running, you were having fun, you were hanging out with your kid and your wife, you were working and everything seemed fine. And all of a sudden, a man comes in and says, you're gonna die. You don't just accept it because someone said it. We had one doctor that told us that go home enjoy the time you have left. And yet another doctor said, we got this, no problem, we'll get it out. He had the surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering and he had an amazing neurosurgeon. They monitored to see if he was having seizures that we just couldn't see. Over the next 24 hours, he had nine more seizures. So by the time that was done, he couldn't talk at all. Would this be easier if I just gave up? If I just said, this is too much of a burden on my family, the pain is difficult, I don't want to deal with this, what if I just said I had enough and ended it? I would be okay the next day because I would be gone. I wouldn't feel the pain, I wouldn't feel the emotion. They do. My wife would feel it for the rest of her life. My son would not have one more day to spend with me. No matter how bad those days were, we had to fight for James. James makes us stronger. I still have cancer today. I still have active cancer cells. I, I'm still on chemo. And I have people say all the time, you don't look like it. You don't look like you have active cancer. It's because every single part of my day, I spend towards improving my ability to live. I followed the, the Brittany Maynard case. To a certain extent, I could identify with what she was dealing with. Same disease roughly the same age, both had families, but I don't agree with what she chose to do. You can't unmake that choice. Once, once you do it, it's done. Unless a cure is found, the disease will come back. When and how, I don't know. My hope and my fight is to keep it at bay for as long as possible. I'd say my biggest fear with assisted suicide is that a patient will go to a doctor who already views them as a terminal patient and sees little hope for anything else, any other treatment options, any other um, outcomes other than death. Chris has saved my life. And she did that while being a mother, while paying the bills. I didn't have to ask for it. I didn't have to need it. She did it because she loved me and she's my best friend and I couldn't imagine being with anybody else besides her. You are more my hero now than I ever thought possible and I love you and you're my best friend. Every single day is a gift and you can't let that go.
we're just transitioning now. The second video um, was taken um, shortly before uh, JJ died. Um, you know, you, you can see with JJ and why it's so important to to um, watch the videos. He was a Marine, he was a fighter, and he had a fighter by his side. Um, not everyone has that, and um, that's why we're here today. He looks at the world and he wants to make it a better place. He said, Chris, we, we gotta share this to help other people. They need to know that it's okay for this to happen and don't be afraid. I started tearing up and I, I said, only you, James Joseph Hansen, are worried about other people in this moment. He only has about four weeks left to live. Yeah. And that was a week ago. The end of September, he got depressed and there was no hope at this point. I was done. Done. Yeah. We're gonna keep going. It's been hard to advocate for JJ. I'm his healthcare proxy. He chose me because I think he knew that I would think, what would JJ want? And I would ultimately fight for him, but I would also let him go. All we can do is today, right? Yeah. And we can make today the best we possibly can. We had three and a half years now when they first only gave you four months. We are in, uh, in love with each other. No worries. Always and forever. Try to hold on to hope for yourself, for those around you, for people you don't even know. And it could be changing their life and you don't even know. You can't think about assisted suicide in one situation. You have to step back and think about who it could hurt because it puts so many people at risk. And that is the danger with assisted suicide. You'll never know. If you make that choice, if you do that, you might have lived like JJ. He had three and a half good years, so many beautiful moments we've shared as a family. He, James has gotten to know his daddy. He knows who his daddy is now. We have, we have Lucas. The joys that we have been able to experience in these three and a half years are too many to count. And when I stop for a moment to think of if we had listened, if we had given up hope, we would have missed out on so much. Lucas requires so much care and love right now. He's dependent on me for everything. And I do it with joy. I take care of him with joy. And why is that so different at the end of life? Every moment we can share together is a gift. Lucas is amazing. The fact that he exists is amazing. 
Thank you. Thank you, Kristen, for being here. Um, so you've already met Kristen. Um, Kristen Hansen um, is the communi community relations advocate at the Patients' Rights Action Fund, um, and, and she's uh, fulfilling a promise she made to her husband by being here, and we're so tremendously grateful. Um, she is an amazing woman. You can probably tell from the videos. Um, we, um, we also have Matt Valeri from the Patients' Rights Action Fund, um, who was a dear friend of JJ in, in, in addition to, to working in advocacy with him. Um, on the day of um, JJ's uh, funeral, um, it was a blizzard in New York, and it was an amazing turnout, including people from who are in the front row from California and people from, from uh, Denver. And um, it was amazing the people who, who got to, to upstate. I don't even know where it is in New York. <laughs> You land New York. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, um, a few of us wound up at the Dominican Sisters of Hawthorne's hospice, cancer hospice. So I felt like this this panel was put together that day. Um, and uh, and so Sister um, Mother Mary Francis is going to talk a, a bit about the work of the sisters who are on the front lines. You know, we we um, when we have these public policy debates, I I fear sometimes. People think that we're glossing over the pain and the emotion. You didn't. You didn't hear JJ and Chris do that in this video. Um, and and thanks. Thank goodness we have people like like uh, the Dominican Sisters of Hawthorne who are dedicated to caring for um, cancer patients um, and uh, and serving them with dignity until until their their last days. Which so often, as she'll tell you, a, a gift to to the families as much as the patients. And um, and of course we have you know Ryan, um, so um, <laughs> um, we we could write books. So we'll we'll just leave it at that. Um, uh, Kristen, would you start out uh, talking to us? Sure. You, yeah, you can just sit there if you want. Um, so you mentioned about myself filling, fulfilling a promise, and that was. That's why I'm here today. JJ adamantly opposed assisted suicide right until the very end. And one of the last things that he asked of me was that I would continue sharing our story to protect vulnerable patients who are going to be put at risk with this, these laws. And he knew it would be hard for me. And I think he knew that I needed to hear him ask me. And I made him a promise that I would keep doing that for him and for all those who don't even know that they need someone fighting for them. So thank you for having me here today. What um, what would you most like to convey to people about about what you learned during your s struggle with JJ until the end? Um, I know I know the issue of the fact that you had to be an advocate, and not 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 just his support and and everything else you were. Um, why why is that so important um, to help people understand um, that aspect of it? I think JJ knew that it was important for me to continue sharing our story because I was able to, through that process of him dying, I've walked the entire journey with him. And I was able to see how this is so important that we support patients right until the very final moments of life. And there is a tremendous amount of work to be done to be able to properly support patients and their families. We, I'm so thankful to all of you who provide care for patients at the end of life. Hospice and palliative care services are so important, but 
patients need better access to that. If, if we care for patients properly at the end of life, then there wouldn't be such a desire for something else. We really need to address all of the needs of the, the patients and the family members because all of them need support. Are there um, questions that people should have in mind that they should be asking their doctors when they're facing these kind of adverse and grave um, diagnoses? I think I think JJ spoke to that in the vi the first video where he said, you know, just because a doctor tells you that you're dying, you need to always question. And I think that's in large part why you don't see the medical um, professional medical community is supporting these laws because they know that they make mistakes. It's incredibly difficult to prognosticate six months or more out. And and just like JJ, he was told he had less than four months to live and was given no hope. And that wasn't just one doctor. It was three different doctors who told us that. And I am so thankful that we held on to hope. And I think that that is probably the most important message that I can convey to, to anyone who might go through something like this is always have hope and remember that no one can truly predict, you, you, not even doctors. Have you been hearing from other families um, in, the, in the last few months and their stories? And So JJ and I, we felt like we had to give hope to others, and, and we did that through our advocacy work, but we also did it through personal connections to others who are fighting cancer, and you know, the world is a much smaller place than you think it is, and people have reached out to us with other family members or themselves who are fighting cancer of a variety of kinds, but specifically um, brain cancer, because there is uh, two not often given hope to patients like JJ with glioblastoma. And I can say that thankfully we have several cancer survivors with glioblastoma now who are approaching three years out um, after that terminal diagnosis, just like JJ, and they're thriving, they're in remission, and they're doing well. And that is just a testament to the fact that doctors can't predict accurately how much time you truly have. So. At the, at the time, you, JJ was, was doing public advocacy. How frustrating was it to have Brittany Maynard everywhere? Um, I mean, people met multiple people, magazine covers. I think the, I wasn't aware of how difficult it is to um, make sure that all the information is being presented properly to the public. And, and seeing that and trying to share our story, we saw that for the large part, national media was covering her side of the story and wasn't, we felt wasn't really covering the dangers inherent in these laws. And so that was frustrating because it's, it's not a quick conversation. If you're really going to look at these laws and see how dangerous they are for not just terminal patients, but um, everyone who uses the healthcare system eventually, um, it takes a longer conversation. And, and so that... JJ being who he is, a, a fighter, and, and wanting to protect other people, knew immediately that he had to get involved. And he was involved for as long as he possibly could have and remains um, um, today thanks to your courage and, 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 and being so, so giving during the course of, of, of this fight. Thank you so much for being here. Matt, can you give us a sense of um, what, what the what the fight looks like, what, what are the challenges. One thing, one thing that's striking to me is it's assisted suicide isn't, physician-assisted suicide isn't legal in all that many states. Um, 
And my, my impression is that people, this is one of those issues, like most of the issues Ryan Anderson talks about, people don't want to even have to go there for, for obvious reasons. And they also, I, I think a lot of people don't know what they think is my impression of, of this issue because you don't want to put yourself in other shoes. Um, but what, what are you seeing in terms of the challenges, the legal challenges, the political challenges, and people's public opinion? Sure. Um, the, the fight has it really exploded with the advent of the Brittany Maynard story. Um, and I think that just to kind of play off a little bit of what Chris had said earlier, and the question, you know, what did that make her feel like? Well, I can tell you just from, you know, both the inside and the outside, looking at JJ and his advocacy, um, he really was her antithesis. And it gave a balance to the whole conversation nationwide. Um, so it, it, it made it so that, yes, there are people in these dire circumstances that can, in fact, have uh, opposing views on this issue. And it made it so that we could actually get down to the, the brass tacks. Um, this issue is opposed, um, assisted suicide legalization is opposed by such a broad range of people from right to left, you know, secular atheists to the most ardent believers and everywhere in between, even people who think killing oneself is a reasonable response to suffering, but who think that legalizing this and making it into a medical treatment um, is highly problematic as a public policy. So all those people work together um, within the context of coalitions, uh, mostly at the state level, but also there are um, a number of organizations that work nationally uh, at the federal level to oppose assisted suicide and to promote um, laws that would support patients um, and that sort of thing. So the long story short is that after she kind of came on into the spotlight, there were um, up to 30 states at a time considering pro-assisted suicide legislation this year, there are 21. Um, people are very reticent about it, um, but on first blush, as, as a thought, as an idea, many people are say kind of what you, you said. Well, I, I'm not super comfortable with this, but you know, if somebody else is in, this, in these circumstances, like who am I to say? The difficulty here is in the legalization. So as, a, as a legal medical treatment option, you convert suicide from the tragedy that it is into a medical treatment. And so that's coded by your hospital system. It's prescribed by your doctor. It's coded by your insurance company. So insurance companies can have and will deny coverage for care that your doctor has prescribed and that you would like to receive, while at the same time, the ever cheap, ever easy assisted suicide is always on the table. And so that's where people in vulnerable circumstances, whether you're um, in a circumstance like JJ, where he had <clears throat> excellent medical insurance, he had an unbelievable, um, su unbelievably supportive community, an amazing wife, a, a really involved family. I mean, <clears throat> he had it all, and it was still unbelievably difficult. And I think Chris can maybe speak a little bit to some of those difficulties at a certain point, but the the thing is, not everybody has that. And so, you know, uh, my father-in-law passed away not that long ago from glioblastoma, two years ago. One of the doctors, our oncologist, said to us, it's so great to see your whole family here in the hospital, you know, da-da-da-da-da. You wouldn't believe how many people I treat every day who are walking this road by themselves. I couldn't even imagine it. 
And so I said to myself after walking out of that appointment with dad, I said, I wonder why people want to kill themselves. So in that sense, the fight is on a, on a multi, uh, multi-leveled thing where, yeah, we as the Patients' Rights Action Fund, we're this you know, secular, nonpartisan, single-issue group. We bring together coalitions of a vast array of different kinds of people from um, you know, heritage types all the way through to the, the people that you typically oppose on everything else, right? So uh, <laughs> uh, we work with all those folks. But at the same time, that's, that's a political fight. That's a policy battle. And that's what we do as the Patients' Rights Action Fund. But there are there's such a, um, a – the, the layers that this thing takes go from the family through you know, increased awareness and understanding of hospice care and palliative care, increased access to those things, um, you know, knowing the homebound person in your neighborhood. Going to the nursing home and visiting the person who has no visitors. These are things that um, are less spoken of, but when you look at the data that comes out of Oregon where we've had assisted suicide legalized for 20 years, you see that the top five reasons people are choosing it have nothing to do with pain. They all have to do with disability or disability-related issues. Um, I feel like a burden on my family. I feel like I've lost my dignity. These are resolvable existential sufferings, and they're not going to be solved by policy. And so um, we recognize in our work lives that there's so much to be done on this issue that kind of goes beyond our ability professionally um, and is going to take you know, a whole community and a whole nation in the end. Thank you um, for what you just said. Um, it drives me crazy that we're, we seem often like a nation that's watching a reality TV show and getting upset about things happening in politics, people talking about civil wars, and just think about people in your life who you know you haven't spent time with, who might feel, feel like they're alone and, and even not in gravely sick situations. We can, we can help the landscape here and really, really change people's lives. Chris, did you want to add anything about some of the struggles that Matt alluded to along the way? So one of the things that I can speak to in regards to you know, hospice, Matt mentioned hospice, was um, we were very well aware doing the work that we do of all the resources available to us. We knew about hospice and palliative care, and, and we wanted to bring those services in at the end of life um, when we knew JJ wanted to be home and be comfortable and free of pain and surrounded by the ones he loves. But we live in a rural area in upstate New York, and unfortunately, our hospice um, provider only had the availability to come to our home a couple hours a week. Now, fortunately, as Matt said, we have a, a wonderful family, an amazing community, and we had support. But we, I saw that, what about all the people who don't have that? We really need to do better. I know in other places, you can have access to 24-hour in-home hospice care, and, and we need to do all that we can to provide better access to those types of services. The difficulty with that, too, is that this is, that's like a, it's a long-term, um, very ambitious goal, mm -hmm. and it's an expensive goal, and it's a, it's a thing that requires um, a lot of different types of people. And so you, you can't just expect it to happen overnight. And the proponents have, of assisted suicide legalization have this kind of single-minded view to get this passed everywhere, 
and you know, the Patients' Rights Action Fund does its its best to you know hold the line defensively and you know push forward offensively here at the federal level, um, you know to 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 speak out against um, judges litigating from the bench, for example. But that's that's a that's a battle that must take place. We must hold the line um, while some of these other longer-term, very, um, very nitty-gritty, down-into-the-trenches type stuff actually can have a chance to happen. And that's, that's something that you know, if, if we don't pick up the fight, if we, aren't, if we allow the law to be a teacher and the thing were to sweep from just a small handful of states into being you know, tens of states, then you end up with this thing being just kind of commonplace. This is how things are and it will affect uh, all of medical practice. So um, to me, the policy fight is really quite imperative as a hand-in-hand operation with some of these pushes towards you know, increasing things like palliative care and like um, having, for, this is just a small example, but most physicians have to take some hours of obstetrics for the, um, for the board to give them their license. They don't have to take any, in most states, any hours of palliative care training. And very few doctors, comparatively speaking to the whole gamut of doctors, will ever deliver a baby, and many more of them are going to deal with people at the end of life. Right, so, um, <clears throat> but again, a longer-term, bigger thing with a lot of different stakeholders. Um, we got to fight. The fight's now. It's on. Saddle up. <laughs> I just have to comment that Brian Anderson's firstborn um, wanted, clearly wanted to be a speaker. That was <laughs> the noise in the background there. A delightful noise. I was thinking it would have, um, I, I was sad that Lucas isn't here. And so, so I think he, he was helping us out. Jack was, Anderson was helping us out there. Um, now, from the front lines, mother, um, Mary Francis, could you talk to us a bit about the work that that your sisters are doing? I, I do have to say, I picture, I haven't been back to, to um, your hospice since since that night in January when we were there, and I, I just, I picture it as this beacon of light, you know, um, in, in, in a, on a dark night in a blizzard, which, which seems like an apt metaphor for the work that you do and, and, and so many pe other people do on the front lines. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to introduce our community first, a religious community that were, was founded in 1900 uh, by the daughter of Nathaniel Hawthorne, Rose Hawthorne. Um, she was looking to do a work of charity. And the work really began in the Lower East Side of New York City in 1896. And she felt at the time that those, the poor who were afflicted with cancer were the people most needed, the group most needed uh, our charity. Um, at that time, cancer was actually thought to be contagious. Um, so many times people were, uh, the poor would remove the person who was sick with cancer and they would go to Blackwell's Island to die alone. And um, so she began the work in the Lower East Side. And we became, as I said, a religious community in 1900. So we're really founded to um, preach the gospel of life to um, the poor who are dying with cancer. And we recognize life as a gift of God and endeavored to help those people um, accept death, that we're caring for to accept death uh, and see 
to accept it with peace, comfort, and hope. Uh, we're a small community. We uh, have one home in Hawthorne, New York, and another in Atlanta, Georgia. Our sisters do all of the care uh, for the female patients, and we do some of the care of our male patients with help of lay staff. Um, we take no money from the government, private insurance, nor from the patients or their families. So it's a free home. Um, we are, are supported by the providence of God with people just know, who know what we're doing and will help us to do that. <clears throat> the sisters not only give palliative care to the patients, we treat the whole person as if they were our family members and as if we've put them up in our best bedroom. Therefore, we like to address them, not as our patients, but as our guests. Our foundress's vision is that we would be, uh, as her spiritual daughters, we would be Mary at the foot of the cross, caring for Christ in the guise of the patient in our bed um, until they died. Each guest, as they are admitted to our home, is assigned to a specific sister for their care. So that sister will most likely be able to accompany that patient from the moment they're admitted till the time they die, and the family as well, if there is a family um, of the patient, they would also be accompanied by the sister. Um, we try to learn their habits, their likes and their dislikes. We want to know about their past. We want to know about their experiences in life. We want to understand the person so that we can better carry their burdens with them and that we can listen and talk to them and, in a way, waste time with them. Uh, that's how we're going to be able to get to know who this person is who is dealing with um, their illness right now. Um, I have to say that we rarely encounter, if ever, encounter a guest or a family member who questions us about taking their life prematurely. Many do come to us with anger about their diagnosis, um, fear of the illness, fear of death, fear of what the illness will bring, um, fear of being a burden, um, even some sadness and some denial. But most of these emotions, as they spend time with us, we see are relieved or dissipated because we assure them I think most importantly, we assure them that their life matters, and it still matters. We celebrate birthdays, holidays, wedding anniversaries, and normal days as well. In other words, we just celebrate their life. Our homes are really filled with joy and a, a celebration of the preciousness of every day. Uh, when I visited um, Rosary Hill when I was discerning my vocation, as I was driving there, I was thinking, why am I doing this? I know God is calling me, but it's going to be a very depressing place, and people are going to just be writhing in pain. Well, I found something totally different. What I found was a house and people, the guests, the family members, and the sisters, who were filled with just joy. And it took my breath away. Um, we had a guest... Um, who came to us in a very poor condition. Um, the family asked to stay overnight because we felt that she was close to dying, and so we allowed them to sit vigil with us. And uh, we sat vigil for a few nights. And then all of a sudden, we noticed that she was improving. 
just a little bit, but she was improving. So we said to the family, you know, go home and get a rest because, you know, she looks okay. Um, she lived for eight years with us. And while she was in a bed and in a chair, back and forth, speaking very little, she was able every Sunday, I mean, they were here, there every day. Her husband was there every day. They were an Italian family. Every Sunday, they would come to Mass in our chapel, and then they would go into the sunroom, and they would eat their Italian meal with Grandma and Mom and for Joe, his wife. Um, she saw her granddaughters in their wedding dresses. She held her great-grandchildren. Um, all of that um, she did because she, the family opted to just let God take care of this and let her live her life. Um, they teach us. They teach us, us sisters the importance of every moment. They teach us the preciousness of the moment. They teach us how to trust and surrender. And they teach us how to suffer with grace many times as well. We had a young man um, who had abused drugs and alcohol for years. He was diagnosed with cancer and he was brought into our home. Very angry man. But gradually, he lived two years actually, gradually over time, our chaplain especially, um, we hope the witness of our lives as well, um, he came back to the church in the sacraments. He was reconciled with his two daughters. He even planted a garden and he grew vegetables on the property when he was well enough to do that. And we watched his transformation daily. And I want to quote from him. Um, he wrote his story before he died as he start, started to see himself getting weaker. And he began it this way. He said, I had eyes, but I could not see. I had ears that heard little and understood nothing. I was among the living, but I was dead. And then my prayers were answered. It was called cancer. When we attended his funeral, there were so many people from all walks of life that came to that funeral. And I couldn't help thinking that had he died before coming to us, how alone he would have been. And his parents were still alive, and they thanked us for giving his there's, you know, giving us back their son. Um, we do sit and pray with the patients. We try our best to be sure that nobody dies alone. Um, and I have to tell you that sitting with someone who's dying is an indescribable experience. There's a sacredness about it. Um, it's the deepest beauty, I believe, of our vocation. Um, there's something extremely beautiful about accompanying someone who's dying. Archbishop Chaput said in one of his books, it's the unrepeatable beauty of a life that has passed away. We had a patient about 20 years ago who I'll call Joseph. Joseph was blind, deaf, and mute from birth. He was adopted by a family who had eight children. And the sister was telling us the story, and she said, Joseph did everything with us. If we went sledding, we took Joseph. Joseph came to us in his 30s. He was dying of cancer. Um, but this young man only knew love all his life from his family. And he preached love from that bed in our home. We had our male staff would almost fight over who was going to take care of Joseph that day because we walked out 
as better people. Joseph, Joseph brought out the best of us and as caregivers, and Joseph showed us how, love. He showed us love. And people would look at Joseph now and maybe say his life was useless, and I'd say not at all, because 20 years later, we still remember taking care of Joseph and Joseph taking care of us, I think. Um, I think people that contemplate taking their lives or attempted to um, or just a cry for help. I wonder if Brittany Maynard's family, had her mother or her husband, had said, no, honey, I want to be with you. I, I want you to stay with us. I want all the time that I can have with you, and I will take care of you. I wonder if she had really, what, if she had heard that, if she would have made the choice she did. I don't think she would have. I really don't. Um, I'm struck even in the documentary on how to die in Oregon, the inability of the families to step up and say those words to, to their family member while they were, they stood back in the sidelines and maybe they talked about it to the cameraman, but they never spoke about it to their family. And I think that's what people want to hear. You're important. Your life matters. I want you to live and I want to be with you till you die. Um, ultimately we can meet death unafraid because we know we have people beside us who love us. And I think also we know that when we do die, we'll see love face to face. I saw a lot of people nodding their heads, clearly remembering um, a, a hospital room or dying, dying days um, while you were talking Mother, and I, I was thinking of a former vice president of the Heritage Foundation, Kato Byrne, who died of cancer. And um, her family very generously invited some of her friends um, in during her last day. And there, there was something powerful going on. And I, I, I think many of us have experienced that. And everybody who was in the room, there was something powerful going on. Um, but what, what struck me the most, her room was overflowing at Georgetown Medical Center and nobody else in, in the, the hallway had, had something similar. Um, they were all alone. Um, thank you for what you do. Thank you. Ryan, um, can you talk a little bit about where we are, how we do better, how we can communicate better with something that, that is a contribution you make on so many issues? Um. So to a certain extent, I, I almost want to say that the, the way we communicate better is just if I don't have to do that communication that right, right, the, the right. three previous speakers. Um, imagine if for every uh, documentary or primetime special with Dr. Kravorkian, there was a primetime special with Mother Mary Frances. Uh, imagine if for every cover story um, on Brittany Maynard, there would have been that covered story on JJ. Uh, I think many people just don't know um, the things that have been presented so far this afternoon. They just aren't aware um, of what happens um, uh, to the practice of medicine, uh, to communities, to families when assisted suicide is a medical option. Uh, they're not aware of what the alternative uh, medical and communal options are. Um, and so to a certain extent, that's what I tried doing um, three years ago with a backgrounders, one of the heritage reports that we're uh, famous for. We write backgrounder reports um, on this issue. It was titled, Always Care, Never Kill, How Physician-Assisted Suicide Endangers the Weak, Corrupts Medicine, compromises the family, and violates human dignity and equality. Um, and if uh, you think back to what was just presented, those are the four basic arguments. I didn't create anything new in this paper. I just summarized other people's insights. 
uh, assisted suicide endangers the weak. Um, those are the people who are most um, at risk for either being uh, physically coerced or emotionally coerced or financially coerced or culturally coerced into ending their lives prematurely. Um, it corrupts the practice of medicine. Um, the reason why for two and a half millennia, the Hippocratic Oath has prohibited doctors from either killing their patients or suggesting that their patients kill themselves uh, is that doctors realize that the power to heal uh, was also a technique that could be turned into something very bad, uh, that medicine couldn't be morally neutral, uh, that it had to be a profession dedicated to the wholeness of patients, not to the elimination of patients, and that this was to protect medical doctors from themselves, that medical doctors can be tempted to use their skills and their techniques um, uh, in a way to eliminate the patient rather than eliminating the underlying problem. And so this was a safeguard, uh, which is why every major medical association still uh, is opposed to physician-assisted suicide. They see it as a betrayal of their vocation as healers. Uh, they see it as undermining medicine. And that's also the um, response that we see from patients. Right? So the work that Matt does with the Patient Rights um, Action Fund how much will you as a patient, if you're a patient with a disability, if you're a patient with a possibly terminal illness, how much will you trust your physician if you know that you're in a jurisdiction where your physician could either heal you or prescribe you a lethal medication? Uh, and what we've seen in the European experience is that physician-assisted suicide quickly morphs into, at first, voluntary euthanasia and then non-voluntary euthanasia, uh, uh, children with disabilities being euthanized against their will. Uh, in one case, there's a story of, of a grandmother being held down in her bed while she shouts, I don't want to die, while they lethally inject her. Um, and, and so there's a concern here from the patient's perspective of can I trust my doctor? And think about the doctor-patient relationship. It's entirely one-sided. When you go to the doctor's office, you confide in the doctor. The doctor doesn't confide in you. When you go to the doctor's office, you disrobe. Your doctor doesn't disrobe. When you go into the doctor's office, the doctor touches you. You don't touch the doctor. It's entirely asymmetrical, one-sided. The doctor has all of the knowledge, all the expertise, all the test results. How much can you trust in your doctor once that bright line of always caring, never killing has been erased? Um, the next part was how it compromises the family. Um, imagine if you're that patient, a patient with a disability, a patient with an underlying illness, uh, and you now think you're a burden to your family. Right? What if you, as the adult children, come to view your elderly parents as burdens? And why are you being so selfish? Why won't you just take the assisted suicide medication? Right? And so you, even with sisters, then you know where the the family doesn't say anything. Yeah. And so it's this tacit, I guess, non-judgmental. I, I guess I should do it, and where maybe that's just a cry for help. Yeah. No, that's, that's really insightful, that, that, that our culture here is so we don't want to judge, so we won't even say, I love you and I want you to keep living, because we're afraid that that could be a form of, of judgment. Um, which is here simply to say that I think working at Heritage, Heritage is a center-right think tank. Uh, it's a fusionist think tank of both conservatives and libertarians. The more free market people within um, our particular constituency, some are like, well, why can't we just have markets and killing? If party A wants to die and party B wants to kill them, why not just have a market in killing? And, and they're thinking about this wrong. They're viewing it as just a spot market with uh, a consensual exchange of services, and they're not seeing any of the ecological effects, any of the 
communal effects, societal effects. Um, they're not even seeing how you couldn't even guarantee that that autonomy, if all you care about is the autonomy of consenting adult A and consenting adult B, uh, we can't even guarantee that, that that autonomy and freedom would actually be respected. But we also have to think about how it would change the practice of medicine, the financing of medicine. Matt already mentioned that there have been cancer patients told by their private health care plans and by government-run health care plans, we can't pay for your chemotherapy, but we'll pay for your assisted suicide. The financing of health care, the practice of health care, intergenerational relationships. And then lastly, how I said it uh, violates human dignity and equality. There will be two standards under the law, uh, a, a category of citizens whose life is protected by the law. And so if they have suicidal thoughts, if they have uh, depression, they will be given suicide preventive care. And then a category of people who will be allowed under the law to have a doctor assist in their suicide. Uh, and so one of the groups that, that I think does some of the best work in this group is a group called Not Dead Yet. And they advocate on behalf of people with disabilities who the rest of able-bodied society uh, views them as, well, your life isn't as worthy of life as the rest of us. Uh, and so they are the, 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 right there in the name, we're not dead yet. Our lives matter. And we deserve the same legal protection as everyone else in society. Um, so to a certain extent, those are the types of, of arguments I've been trying to make. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they haven't thought about this. They just think about it as consenting adult A wants to die, consenting adult B wants to kill them. We believe in liberty, so why not just have a market in killing? They don't see that you can't have markets in killing. It's not the type of thing that should be sold. Uh, and even if you did allow it to be sold, there's no way that you would cabin the effects. Uh, the bleed-over effects, the externalities would corrupt everything it touches. I, I'll follow, follow up with just that. That I've been to a, a number of meetings here in Capitol Hill and elsewhere where though the response is, yeah, I've just never thought about this issue, so lay it on me. You know, in a state like Massachusetts, where I'm from, we had a ballot initiative on this issue in 2012 where at the outset of the election cycle, the polling was you know, in the, in the low to mid 70 percentile mm -hmm. acceptance of, of what would be the, the, um, the ballot initiative. At, then we won by a percent and a half by the end. And why? Because once people begin to realize the implications of the law, they become opposed. <laughs> and so that, that education piece and just these kind of um, every man's recognition that these things are problems, the sorts of things that Ryan talks about and many others are problems with having suicide be a medical treatment and thinking through those implications. Our side is not oh, we've got a sound bite for you, and that's enough to convince you. It's going to take a little time. We're going to have to walk you through all of the problems. But once people do walk through them, no matter whether they're right or left or indifferent or uh, they're apolitical, they're like, well, hell, that's a bad idea. You know, so um, that walking through, that, that education, that kind of outreach is just something every person can do for everybody else. And that reminds me something about the Massachusetts example. Um, the lead sp one of the lead spokespeople against assisted suicide there uh, was Victoria Kennedy, Ted Kennedy's late wife. Uh, and one of her messages was that assisted suicide betrays the legacy of my husband, who advocated for affordable health care for everyone. Uh, and then her story was very similar um, to JJ's um, and Chris's. Of Ted Kennedy was diagnosed with just months to live he ended up um, living for 15 additional months beyond the diagnosis. He went back to the Senate. 
Um, and she wrote a, a, an op-ed that I quote in the paper just talking about all the quality family time that they had, the extra laughter, the extra singing, and how Ted died in a bed surrounded by his wife, his children, and their family priest, uh, rather than um, uh, taking a lethal dosage. And how one is a death with dignity, a true death with dignity, is how Senator Kennedy died, um, naturally at home with family and friends, and how that lethal medication is not uh, true dignity. It's undermining the dignity of the patient. And so it's a bipartisan. The other nice thing about this is it's a bipartisan issue. Uh, Ted Kennedy's on the left side. And he, Heritage normally didn't agree with Ted Kennedy. We agreed on this issue. Yeah, I, would, I would even go so far as to say it's nonpartisan. Yeah, yeah. And that, that op-ed really changed the course. I know the Patients' Rights Action Fund was involved in that. It, it just changed everything in Massachusetts once, once the Kennedy name was part of the story and, and, and that experience. Um, and you had been doing so much educational groundwork um, that, that, um, that um, was so, so helpful. Um, we're, we'll take a few questions. I just want to say um, Ryan's paper is so accessible and such a great resource. Maybe everybody in this room could commit to doing share, sharing the video um, that um, with Chris and, and JJ. It's on YouTube. It's very easy to find. It's on the Patients' Rights Action Fund. Um, if, if, if you do Facebook and Twitter or just in actual human conversation, have a conversation about the Dominican Sisters of Hawthorne who have a website and, and um, you can read up on some more details and where their homes are. And um, People don't know they exist. They should know they exist. Um, JJ's name should be a household name. Um, so let's help try, try to make it so. Um, and, and yeah, share Ryan's paper because if you, if, um, it's, it's just a great primer. Um, so with that, let's. We have a microphone, and um, Monica, can you get over here? Oh, we have two. Heritage is amazing. The resources. <laughs> Heritage. Heritage is awesome. Hi, I'm Melissa Ortiz, and um, I, I think I can do this without crying. I had the honor of lobbying the DC Council with JJ beside JJ, and. Um, literally standing in the hall with him when he got dizzy. And I have petite mal seizures. And what's interesting is that my service dog, who's in my lap, was actually alerting to JJ and watching him very carefully. So this is very personal to me to see. And I'm so proud of you, Kristen, for the legacy that you are doing. And I want to encourage the audience. Um, you may not know someone because you don't know their story. You may not know the people around you. They're carrying very heavy battles that have to do with exactly this. I was thrilled to death that Ryan brought up disability because I will share just very briefly, um, seven years ago, I had to have an emergency gallbladder removal and I got very, very sick in the recovery room and my husband had just gotten in there and I couldn't, and my bladder was not emptying and I was going to stroke level. And the nurse very casually looked at him and said, it'll be okay. She'll die while she's still under anesthetic. And, you know, what does her life matter anyway? And my husband being the Brooklyn-born, Queens-raised man that he is, went all New York City on them and took over and saved my life, basically, there in the recovery room. But y'all, that's, that's the, there's this idea that suffering doesn't matter, and we are afraid to suffer. And suffering is not always about the person that suffers. Suffering is about the people around the person that suffers. I look at 
Matt, and I look at Kristen, and Matt has become a brother in arms in this fight. And um, and I look at Ryan, and I look at Kristen, who I'm excited to get to know better, and and Mother Mary Francis there. And, I, and I'm just like, y'all, you know that your lives have been transformed by watching other people suffer. Suffering is not a bad thing, and until we can get that out in the media, until we can convey that to our friends and our family, and until they stop making movies like You Before Me, we will never ever stem the tide on this idea. We've got to stand firm and let the groundwork happen. So. Thank you. Monica went in the back. So obviously um, palliative care and hospice care is uh, very central to this, increasing it um, to make end of life um, valuable and treat it um, with respect. Um, so obviously there's some organizations, religious and um, nonprofit, that already do some of this. Um, what kind of public policy um, would you suggest at the state or federal level um, to increase access and equality, um, especially if you live in a rural area uh, where there's not as much access? Um, basically what public policy could help in this situation? I'll just, I'll just jump in, but the... A main thought that has occurred to us and many of our allies is to ask states and state licensing boards to require physicians to be trained in palliative and hospice care. And that, um, like I said earlier, many physicians are trained in a variety of things throughout medical school um, that are required. And this, if it's required, is very low on the totem pole. Um, when it would be much more utilized um, by more doctors than some of the other things that they are required to do. So that's, that's one direction one could go in. In addition to um, having standards, so I think a lot of people are, and maybe rightfully, cautious about hospice care, um, in part because of you know, this idea that there is a possibility that some may um, hasten death um, through the means of preventing pain and in the name of preventing pain when that's not what their real intention is, this kind of thing. So that's a difficulty that has to be overcome, firstly, both in not doing that in the first place <laughs> and training people in such a way that um, these things are for the relief of pain and not for the, the cause of death. But, um, you know, in places like we both live in rural areas where, you know, the standard of hospice care or palliative care may be quite low um, comparatively to say what it would be here in the city or, you know, in Boston, New York. So requiring hospitals, which it would be very difficult to do, uh, I grant legislatively, but requiring hospitals to have a certain um, static level um, of, a, of a hospice and palliative care team. So... Um, an excellent hospital like whatever, Memorial Sloan Kettering or something, where JJ was treated. It's like the absolute best possible quality of care. Um, but at, you know, whatever, Athol Regional, where, <laughs> which is the closest hospital to my house, you're not going to even have somebody who is even trained in palliative care, never mind a team. And so <clears throat> I don't know what the, the exact solution would be for a small hospital that wouldn't necessarily have the budget to keep a whole team on this and that, but to have, um, I think a move in the direction where um, hospitals of a certain size 
in areas with a certain population, this kind of thing, would have uh, palliative care teams that meet what palliative care physicians, those who, like a Dr. Ira Bayok, who is one of the great uh, opponents of assisted suicide, he's a, um, he's a physician in Southern California. He, he promotes a, a kind of mode of um, standardization of hospice and palliative care, so not all are the same. You might get a group that's not so great, or you might get Mother Francis, Mother Mary Francis. You know, so th- there's there's quite a disparity in having having a benchmark where we all can just trust that that's the level of care that we're going to receive. <clears throat> and obviously, we depend state to state, in which some states like Massachusetts have certain things already in place, and others have nothing. And so it would be kind of I would say looking to some of those standardizations and recognitions in policy that would kind of ensconce palliative care and hospice in in the right sort of it, you know, <laughs> into uh, normal everyday everywhere situations. Um, I'll, I'll just add uh, two short things. One is that um, Bob Moffitt, one of our healthcare um, analysts here, a senior fellow here at Heritage who focuses on Medicaid and Medicare, um, he's coming out with a paper shortly on end-of-life decision-making from a kind of a healthcare policy context and how you can structure the public policy on this um, to get it right. Um, and, and I've chatted with him about it, um, but I don't remember all the exact mechanisms. So I would just say keep an eye out for when that paper comes out. But part of his argument is that by empowering patients – and giving them greater control over their health care, uh, you can actually have a demand side uh, um, uh, way of generating more palliative care. The other thing I'll mention is that you know, we have some of the leaders um, of the Beckett Fund uh, with us today. And remember what the little sisters of the poor do when they're not suing the federal government. <laughs> and so one of the public policy responses here is get the government out of the way so that orders of Catholic nuns and other nonprofits can do the life uh, uh, giving and life-saving work that they do. Right? One of the problems that Little Sisters of the Poor, for people who don't know, they also take care of uh, the sick and the elderly as they prepare to die. And as a condition of their continuing to do that, they were going to have to undermine the very religious and moral beliefs that got them into this uh, project in the first place as part of Obamacare. And so protecting religious liberty in the healthcare system is also an important uh, policy proposal here. One of the things that we've seen in some uh, countries is that after physician-assisted suicide is permitted, it becomes required, uh, and their religious liberty concerns on whether or not doctors and hospitals will have to perform physician-assisted suicide, offer it, counsel for it, prescribe it. Um, and so there are also concerns of what happens once the law goes wrong there. Joel, did I see your hand up? Okay. Well, with, with that, I, I think uh, so, so many of you gave us such a precious gift of your time today. I know um, you all do important work, and so thank you for coming. Um, we should get you back to that important work. Um, thank you to our panelists, most especially to Chris Hansen for coming here um, and, and continuing to, to talk about um, your life and, and, and the incredible witness um, you're giving all of us. Thank you, Mother Mary Francis, for coming, coming on Amtrak this morning and going back after um, and thank you, Matt. Thank you, as always, Ryan, for, for hosting. I, I, I should mention, if you Google, there's, there's um, a panel we did with Sister Constance Spite um, from the Little Sisters of the Poor, um, and, uh, and, and you'll be inspired by that, too, um, if you haven't had enough inspiration for today. Um, thank you. <laughs>